Hey everyone, Kevin here. Just letting you know that we've decided to release a t-shirt just ahead of the holiday season. So go to entheogenshow.com and check out our t-shirt starting at $25. Uh, Help support the show and the cause. This is Entheogen. We talk about tools for generating the divine within. It's October 15th, 2015, and we're talking about modern shamanism. Today, we're very pleased to be joined by a special guest, Mika. Hey, Mika. Hey, guys. What's up? We'll hear more about uh, Mika's experience with ayahuasca, especially modern shamanism, a little bit later. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about what ayahuasca is. Ayahuasca. What is it? What is it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so ayahuasca is a, is a traditional, uh, brew, um, used in a sacred context in, I guess it started in South America. Um, and that's basically where you'll find it today, um, used in this traditional, uh, setting. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's combined, it's, it's two plants basically. Um, so you have a vine and you have another, uh, you know, uh, additive plant. Um, the vine Banisteriopsis capi is the, is traditionally known as ayahuasca, um, that vine is basically contains a, a mild MAO inhibitor, um, which is what gives a DMT containing uh, plant that's added to the brew uh, its effect. It allows the DMT to pass uh, through the, the, the digestive system and uh, end up in the brain. Um, the DMT containing plants can be various things, but typically I think the most common one is Cicotria viridis, otherwise known as uh, Chacruna. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. the, that's a traditional brew of ayahuasca. Did I get that right, guys? Yeah, yeah, that's my understanding. And I've heard from people like in Brazil that sometimes ayahuasca is used alone without the chacruna. Um, and it's more of like a rite of passage and more of it, it's more about the purging because like the chacruna, which has the DMT, um, if you eat it, like you said, without the MAO inhibitor, it'll just get digested and, and the DMT will never actually enter your bloodstream. But the the root, the ayahuasca itself, um, both, you know, provides the ability for the DMT to enter your bloodstream, as well as that's kind of what, that's what's going to make you sick, because just drinking ayahuasca alone is going to induce purging, you know, vomiting or or otherwise. Um, and yes, it, it, you know, in, in the jungles of uh, the Amazon and Peru and Brazil and, and Colombia, I believe, you know, for thousands of years and. When you think about the millions of species of plants that are in the world, much less, you, you know, a tropical jungle, and it's to, to think that however long ago it was that they thought to combine these plants in this way, it's really, it's really remarkable. Yeah, it, that's a really good point. I mean, the, the, as you put it, the, the way that they decided to combine these plants um, is, is really interesting because, of course, they're in the rainforest. I mean, you're in a jungle with, uh, I don't know, thousands upon thousands of plant species and varieties and it just so happens that uh, these two particular plants combined together uh, do have a psychoactive effect, whereas, um, you know, either of them individually don't have an effect, or at least, as you said, the, maybe the vine itself has some kind of effect, maybe even a mildly, um, you know, feel-good effect, but just given the MAO inhibitor part of it, in addition to the fact that it makes you sick. But it's still it, kind of miraculous that they combine these two plants into this really amazing amazingly powerful, um, transformative experience. And, uh, you know, the story goes, and this may be apocryphal, but, um, when asked, uh, how did you know to combine these two plants? Uh, shamans have answered the question, the plants told us. Right. Tobacco. I've heard a lot specifically, they point to tobacco as being a a plant that 
um, provided a lot of information about the plants and how to combine them and how you know we can learn or be more healthy through their use. I- I'm also curious about um, – so the, I've only had the one ayahuasca experience, but uh, there's one thing that the uh, shaman, for lack, lack of a better word, or, or guide who led the, led the practice said, and it was that uh, – so for, for the first time you take uh, ayahuasca, the, the, the brew itself, I expected it to taste very bad because of the whole purging aspect. And I was surprised to find that it tasted sort of like a coffee, dark chocolate mix. And it was not uh, gross in any way. And for the people who had done it more than one time, they couldn't even – they couldn't smell it. They couldn't see it. It was just – it was horrible for them. And uh, so talking about that afterwards – and he mentioned that before. He said, you know, if this is your first time, you'll have no problem. If it's, you know, your second time or after, you know, pinch your nose and just try to uh, get it down as quickly as possible. Hmm. And and he basically said that since uh, he's been doing the ayahuasca for about 15 years, I guess, he said he, he notices when substances or different things have DMT in them because his nose is so uh, alert <laughs> to that odor. Yeah, I've noticed that too, actually, for, yeah. for a number of years. I've, I've uh, you know, I'll be walking by... Uh, like just a, some interesting plant and I'll think that smells really familiar. Um, exactly. So I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not that plays a role. Like, you know, if, uh, if once you've, uh, had, you know, had the, had the DMT, if per- perhaps, uh, your nose is a little bit more fine tuned to, mm, to detecting it in the, in the forest. But, uh, this, this guy told us he even, um, there's a, a wine producing region in the in the north of Spain that is called uh, Ribera de Duero, and the wines that they produce there. Up, I didn't know this, but apparently they they have a high, they have they have a high. This is a, information that I'd have to verify, but according to him, they have a higher DMT count than some uh, some ayahuasca plants. The wine itself, and he said it's very hard for him to drink those wines. Wow, he's just wild. very. He's very. He's repulsed when he when he smells uh, one of those wines. Yeah, I, I have I have not had one of those since that experience, but uh, and I hope that does not happen because it's one of my favorite wines. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to add some uh, some more information uh, when you guys were talking about the the ayahuasca brew. There are actually very specific recipes. Uh, that involve many, many different plants, and then you'll find the ayahuasca brew uh, in in all different regions of you know Peru and Brazil, uh, Ecuador. That each shaman has his own specific way of preparing it. And uh, Kevin was talking about taste. I've had ayahuasca that it tastes really good. You know, like you drink it as a coffee, and I've had ayahuasca taste so bad that you almost throw up just trying to drink it. Hmm. So there, there is a very large array of uh, of qualities and effects that don't. That obviously, those those two plants you mentioned are are a you know, key part of of the brew, but it's by no means limited to those two at all. Sure, I remember reading uh, Ralph Ralph Metzer's uh, famous ayahuasca book, and that's one of the things he mentioned that the 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 word ayahuasca is kind of very vague in general because it, there's just such such a vast array of possibilities, and then also other things that can be added to you know possibly change flavor and things like that. Right. So, I mean, I think we focus on these two plants in particular because uh, that's really, I guess, ayahuasca distilled to its essence, um, to my mind anyway, you know, is, is an MAO inhibitor 
and uh, and DMT. I mean, it seems like that's really the the, the one two punch, you know, of the thing. Um, and the rest of it is just kind of, uh, you know, f- flavor, I guess. Um, I'm sure that's not entirely true, but, um, but in a modern context, um, you can even, uh, extract, you know, those a- active alkaloids and, uh, concentrate them and take, you know, even ayahuasca, uh, quote, uh, in a pill form, um, so I, I'm wondering if, uh, so we have a variety of experiences here. I've had basically one experience, um, in a modern context. Uh, I had one about 15 years ago or so that was in a apartment in Brooklyn, um, that, uh, it didn't quite work. Actually, you know what? There were two, there was one on a beach in Brooklyn too. Um, and neither of which quite worked. I think it just wasn't the right time for me because a couple other people had had a full on experience. Um, but, uh, but the more modern one definitely worked, uh, about a year ago or so. And, uh, this was, uh, in the form of, um, some, uh, chocolates. Uh, so that I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, and also a, 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 a pill, pill form as well. Sort of like a gel cap kind of situation. Um, so that was my experience and, you know, it was definitely not what I was expecting when I, uh, you know, what I've learned about ayahuasca had nothing to do with chocolate or, or gel caps. Um, but you know, that's, that's one end of the spectrum. Um, and I'm curious to hear from you guys. I know, Kevin, you had one as well a few months ago. And, and Brad, I know you've had a lot more in this sort of more traditional context. Yeah, I mean, I mean mine, mine was uh, sort of a hybrid experience because the, the guide or, or – I, I say guide because I don't uh, – this is something I think we'll talk about as the show goes on. But I, I didn't – I don't think this man considers himself a, a shaman in that sense. I think he has kind of a hybrid uh, dynamic for, for running things. But um, – but yeah, it was uh, it was a, a private a private house uh, in the in the country and uh, very very well set up, very uh, very structured, and I and I think everything was all precautions were taken to make everybody feel supported and comfortable, and there were certain element traditional elements, but it, it definitely was um, a more modern interpretation. And yeah, my f- the first time I drank was in Brooklyn as well. It was in an apartment, and it was someone who, you know, I, I similarly wouldn't call himself a shaman, um, but he has been practicing and working with shamans in Peru for seven years, and he did his best uh, to create an authentic experience. You know, so the whole um, setting intentions and having, you know, singing the ikaros, singing the songs throughout the night, and providing support the best he could. It's something that he's been working on for a long time. But that was in a in an apartment in uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant. And then subsequent to that, I drank a few times in Colombia, um, not too far from Medellin and Santa Elena. So that was in a, a, a like a jungle forest. And that was uh, on private property. It was in kind of a large tent. And there were, there were you know, the main kundera or healer. And then he had two people supporting him each time. So vastly more uh, like authentic in terms of an experience um, com- as compared to Brooklyn, of course. <laughs> um, but even that, you know, was very different than the experiences I had in, in Peru. Um, not just the, the structure of the night and the setting, but also the, the experience themselves as well as the brew. Um, but that was in southern Peru uh, near Puerto Maldonado. Um, and I, I did, that was the first time that I, uh, that I had done like a retreat. So it was for seven days and we drank every other night. So there was a whole diet. There was, it was way more immersive and and comprehensive, um, 
and the you know all the experiences are really fascinating and and personal. So it's really kind of hard to authentically talk about each of them. But but yeah, I feel really fortunate that I've had a chance to go to to Peru and Colombia to have those experiences there. And one of the things I gained was an appreciation for how much uh, the my introduction. Um, was as authentic as I think he could have done. Um, I, 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 after seeing it sort of on its home turf, I appreciated that first experience even more. Interesting. And and how long ago was that first experience in Brooklyn? Um, 2012. Yeah. Yep. And then I was in Colombia in 2013 and Peru in 2014. And uh, so Mika, hearing uh, hearing these these kind of experiences, how can you uh, I don't know how can you compare them to what what your experience is? Well, um, I also have been to Peru to uh, drink uh, ayahuasca in a traditional ceremony with a shaman who um, plays the ikaros, and it uh, it kind of it points actually actually to two very very key things. Um, one, you know, when in any psychedelic experience, we talk about substance, set, and setting. The you know the substance being what you take, the set being what you bring to the experience, and the setting being what's around you. And when you have a, or when you're working with a guide and you're setting intentions, and there's a sacred context, it creates a container for deep experience that can be very healing. Um, in in other contexts, uh, psychedelics can be not healing. They can actually cause trauma. Um, a lot of people in the 60s who just like were at concerts or whatever and just took a ton of acid. Like some, some of those people haven't really they're come still back there. all the way. Yeah, they're, they're still at the that concert. Is, that's part of the reason why having a guide and having a safe container is essential. And why recreational use of psychedelics is something that I personally don't endorse. Uh, you know, not everyone has access to a shaman, so I totally understand. I mean, we've all had our initial experiences um, with psychedelics in in, in sort of uh, non-traditional contexts, and that's great. It's totally okay, and it's good to experiment. But if you really want to do deep work. Finding a guide who knows what's going on and being able to create that safe space is very important. And the second thing, uh, Joe mentioned chocolate. There are, I don't even know how many psychoactive compounds. Uh, almost anything can be psychoactive if you prepare it properly. For example, uh, something as common as black pepper can create a very intense uh, empathogenic experience, which is sort of like a heart-opening uh, embodied experience similar to ecstasy. So when you're taking something like cacao, which is psychoactive on its own, or mushrooms or anything else, it really creates almost a different medicine. So that's why each, prepar- each shaman's preparation of ayahuasca with all the different combinations, yes, it's ayahuasca and it's their ayahuasca. So uh, what you know, Joe's experience was, and the experience of drinking the ayahuasca tea, are very significantly different experiences. Almost like taking two different medicines. Um, and I just think that's important to mention because you know, when you're comparing apples to apples, you <laughs> apples to bananas or whatever, you gotta be know, you gotta know what you're comparing. So uh, the ayahuasca tea, which is you know ayahuasca vine and tracuna uh, based. 
is very specific, and that's one kind of medicine. And then when you combine ayahuasca with other things, they're different medicines, essentially. Yeah, I think in the West, you know, especially we we have a very like reductionist uh, viewpoint, and it's easy to kind of like uh, just think that you know the uh, the chocolate is like the carrier, you know, and that's certainly kind of the way I, I had been thinking about it. Um, but you're right. I mean, chocolate itself has lots of you know psychoactive compounds in it, which may not entirely be noticeable if you just kind of eat some dark chocolate. Uh, if you're not sort of paying attention to it, it might just taste good, and that's the the primary experience. But combined with something that uh, has a very opening effect, you know, I think those, uh, those other aspects of chocolate, uh, definitely become more prominent and combined, uh, lead to, you know, that broader experience of that particular, um, you know, preparation. That's a really good point. And the other point I, you made just about the, um, the, the, con- like, you know, creating a, a container for a deep experience. Um, that's a point we talked about it, uh, in the burning man episode, um, Kevin, you brought you made the point of, about, um, I guess, like, uh, you know, you were wondering if like setting the stage, um, you know, when like ha- making a circle and like everybody kind of like expressing their intentions, did that lead you to sort of going deeper, you know, in your journey? Yeah, sure. And I, I think, I think there's so much to be said for structure. And I think Mika did a great, uh, job pointing that out. I mean, I, and I'm a big fan of the of the recreational psychedelic use, uh, you know, with, with, with the proper controls in place. But, um, but like you said, if you really want to do something deep and you want to, you want to work on, on yourself, then, then I think you need that, uh, that structure and that, uh, container that he mentioned. Um, but there was something Mika, there's this, there's this thing that's been eating, eating away at me for a while. And I've been bringing it up with a lot of people and I'd love to have your, uh, opinion on it. And it's that I think in, it's my opinion anyway that we tend to in the west have two possible points of view towards uh like something like traditional ayahuasca use we're either uh, extremely uh, radically reverent and it's uh, unacceptable unless it is done in the way that they do it or uh we tend kind of to ignore it completely and I'm just curious as to, for example, is something like creating a container and, and having a proper set and setting. I wonder if the modern Western person really feels comfortable in in something like a jungle setting that is completely foreign to them. And I just wonder that, you know, maybe perhaps the success of um, these ayahuasca, modern ayahuasca circles, apart from the experiences itself, is that um, it's done in a setting that's familiar to to the person and that uh, sets the mind at ease. And then also um, something that we talked about with Mariana when she was on were kind of the symbols and, and archetypes and, and things that are used in, uh, in, in shamanism. And perhaps we don't uh, un- completely understand uh, things that don't come from our culture. And maybe, maybe the, modern, the modern circle, even though it seems uh, sort of like a Western adaptation, perhaps it is better suited uh, to, to people from, from our culture. Well, uh, so I'm, I'm hearing basically two things. Um, I don't think that it's as black and white as you presented it. I think there's a lot of gray in the middle. I think you're going to find a lot of people who have different opinions. Maybe they're kind of curious and they, you know, maybe feel hesitant because they're scared. You you have other people who are really curious, but they've had religious backgrounds and they feel like, you know, maybe I'm doing something sinful. You know, there's a 
very complex uh, and individual relationship for each person. Um, I do think that as far as going into the jungle and uh, sort of that being foreign, there is a sense of connection with the earth and mother nature. And if you have that connection, it doesn't matter what context you're in. So you can connect to the jungle in my experience at least, as easily as you can to the mountains or to the ocean, uh, just because we're so, it's very primal, and we have this primal connection to the earth. Uh, the second thing that you mentioned is actually very important, and it's uh, about, uh, about cultural context. And there's something very real about doing a traditional ceremony outside of the initial context. And what happens, or what can happen, is without the cultural background to support your experience, uh, it can be sort of difficult to hold on to it, or different to interpret, or different to understand. When you're in the jungle and everyone in your community has the mythology and the... Um, this sort of historical background of experience, then you feel part of a community. Doing the doing the tea connects you to the to your ancestors and to your culture. But if you're coming from the north, and you're in that context, you're bringing a different set of beliefs, a different mythology, um, maybe a combination of of many different mythologies, and therefore what you're going to experience is certainly different than what the native people are going to experience. Now, does that is that bad or wrong, or is there something lacking there? I don't think so. Because uh, I think what's essential uh, to, the, to the whole process is really your relationship to yourself. And the ayahuasca tea facilitates that conversation. So whether or not you see a jungle god or whether or not you see Jesus is irrelevant. It really... It's just a, a, the relationships you hold in your own spirit to those to those uh, uh, you know entities, for lack of a better word, or uh, those objects of consciousness, those symbols. Hmm. And I think what you find in in uh, modern context, as the ayahuasca moves from the jungle to Manhattan, for example, that the shamans are frequently adapting what's happening to the Western experience. There's a lot more psychology involved. There's a lot more talking. There's a lot more um, sort of exploration about what things mean from an intellectual place because in we, are, uh, as a culture, tend to be in the mind a lot more than the people in the jungle. So it necessitates a different approach, and I think that approach is, uh, is happening, and it's healthy. Maybe the best advice is just follow your own inner guidance. If you feel called to the jungle, um, you know, to have this experience in a really traditional uh, setting, uh, maybe that's where you should go. And if you feel called to join some friends uh, in a, you know, more, more local setting uh, on a weekend or something like that, um, you know, have whatever experience kind of like resonates with you. Joe, you mentioned something uh, really important, and, and that is your you know your journey with yourself and should should other people should, like should you do this is a really important question uh i used to think everybody should do this work and it should just be like available to everybody and everyone could benefit i no longer think that's that is necessarily true because when you're really getting down in there you start to 
open up your full being. So there are certain places of difficulty sometimes with certain people. Maybe there's trauma. Maybe there is, <coughs> excuse me, maybe there's some shadow uh, energy, whatever. And that's, you know, bringing that up can be very healing, very in- integrating, very positive. And it requires a certain capacity of spirit for that to be handled in a positive manner. You have to have a certain amount of intellectual ability, a certain amount of spiritual strength. So going in guns blazing is not necessarily um, the right approach for everybody. So I just wanted to throw in some, some healthy caution in the sense that like, you know, this isn't necessary to live a, ha- a full happy life. It can be extremely helpful. And if that's something that your spirit is called to do, then that's great. But certainly, you know, be methodical in your approach, I would recommend. Have you seen people go into the experience kind of uh, nonchalantly? Because I have to say, like me personally, I was very uh, – it took me a very, very long time to to make the decision to do it. It had been on my mind for years. I'd been reading about it and I – uh, I have to say, I was generally shitting myself about it until <laughs> until so I made the decision. And, we're and then, and then yeah, well, well, first I <laughs> puked on myself, and then I, <laughs> I've, I have seen that, Kev. I've totally seen in people fact, just nonchalantly, well, really. I, I mean, the the people who I've heard who talk about ayahuasca being a bad experience for them, like there, there's so there's, I think people can have varying levels of uh, an experience that's difficult. But almost everybody will ultimately focus on and take with them huge positive things, you know, lessons, realizations, uh, self-comfort, self-love, whatever it may be. But the only people who I've ever heard share sentiment of just like, no, ayahuasca was – it was a bad experience where I think people who are going into it looking for a psychedelic experience, something that was going to be fun and recreational – and when they came across, and you know, these are people that I met like backpacking and traveling through South America. They're like, well, heck, we're in Peru. We're in Iquitos. There's literally people trying to sell this to me on the street. You know, it's like, why not go wow. do a retreat and see what everybody's talking about? And, you know, slanging, I think there is slang in ayahuasca. Yeah. And they, you know, they were just, their opinion of it was, eh, I was unimpressed. And, you know, it's like part of me feels like, oh, that's a shame. And the other part of me is like, well, you know, that's it could have been worse for them. I, I guess they could have had, a, you know, a negative experience that was overwhelming or, or whatever. But in my experience, like I have seen people kind of, you know, not go into it, but I've heard them talk about their experiences where they clearly didn't have, you know, the same appreciation for it that you did, you know, going in. Yeah, I think I think it's not even about the the substance. I mean, like, you, I think you should read about the substance. You should know what you know what you're taking as as uh, as with anything else. But I think really, when you make the decision to do something like ayahuasca, it's you're making the decision to 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 observe the observer, as they say, right? Or like to turn the <laughs> turn the focus inside. And uh, and I think that's like Mika said, you have to have a little bit of uh, you know spiritual balls to do that. <laughs> spiritual fortitude. I've heard stories of people at like rainbow gatherings where they're like walking around with a bottle of ayahuasca and they're like, oh, have a cup. And oh, no, yeah. Like uh, when some of my friends in Colombia had, had talked about seeing that. And, you know, as far back as like 10 years ago, you know, I think people who thought they were sort of on the cutting edge of partying and it's just like, wow. <laughs> just to speak to that party 
thing. There are some substances, you know, um, mushrooms, acid, uh, other, you know, ecstasy, that these things can be enjoyed more easily in a party context for some people. Um, ayahuasca specifically is the, so not that. It, I mean, I can't imagine anybody being in a party context and having a, a good time with ayahuasca. <laughs> you're, you're, th- you know, because there's a purgative, <laughs> there's a purgative effect. That Brazil did a study. I think it was seven years study. It's the biggest study to ever done in ayahuasca. They interviewed thousands of people because they were trying to find out if it was dangerous. And the number one uh, danger that, that caused pain, uh, harm with ayahuasca, it was falling downstairs. Hmm. <laughs> there was no overdoses at all. Uh, it, you know, did they do the study at a frat house? What did they do? <laughs> <laughs> but if I mean, if it's it's true, <laughs> if you try to, you know, if you ever uh, drink the tea and try to walk around, it is not something you want to. You're like eager to do. It can be difficult. You're. It can be. You know, you're. You want to just lie down in a quiet space, and something that happens um, to a lot of people is this experience of openness. I mean, it certainly happened to me where you're just so open that this that sounds are very loud. Other people's energy is very large, and um, just to to think about it as a party drug is just completely crazy to me. It's like, like not you you know, and also for the difficulty of it, when we're talking about people having negative experiences. Um, if you Go at it. There's something called spiritual bypass, which is where you a person uh, takes psychedelics or prays or or whatever in order to get to to bliss, in order to escape their pain, and that can work. But ultimately, what brings you peace is not escaping the pain, but but go bringing it up, going into into it, working with it, integrating it. And and creating peace by going through the darkness and you know turning the the dragons or the demons into allies and transforming them so they they work with you, um, and that peace right there, the willingness to confront the darkness is the difference between, in my opinion, a, a good experience and a bad experience. A a good experience is where you're open to whatever is happening. A bad experience is when you're resisting the plant because you don't want to go there. Yeah, I would agree with that. My experience too, you know, and that's true psychologically. It's true physically in experiences that I've had where, yeah, the more I was willing to be open and to let go, the the more I got out of it, and certainly the more comfortable it was. And I think any with anything, uh, any psychedelic uh, substance, if you find yourself fighting with. With the substance or with yourself, uh, that's it's not good, you know. And I, that's definitely uh, true with ayahuasca. And I, I remember um, one of the things that stuck out to me uh, when when I went was that uh, the guide said he explained in the in the tradition that he had started with in ayahuasca in Peru that there were kind of these uh, three um, archetypal experiences that he uh, explained the, the, the condor, the jaguar and the, and the serpent. And without getting into it, uh, deeply, everybody listening to that for the first time, those who had been there the first time, 
Uh, he said, you know, you, you just heard my speech and every, and I've, I think all of you are, are that are here for the first time are thinking, man, I really hope I have the like the condor. And he's like, and if you're here for your second time, you're hoping, I mean, I really hope I get the serpent. You know, and I thought that was uh, really, 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 you know, meaningful. It's like that's that's why I think you would hope hope people would go to do something like that. And then if you were to repeat it, it's because you found some um you found some meaning in that in that experience, and that you thought it could be something very helpful in your future. And this is another reason why a guide is so important, because if you do have that sort of serpent experience, and you're going into some gnarly places, there the reason they were locked up to begin with is because you didn't know how to deal with them when they happened initially. So when you bring them out, you know it can be very difficult to be therapists to our own selves. Uh, even if you're very good with other people and you can see what's going on with them and give them great advice, sometimes it's very useful uh, or even necessary to have somebody who knows what's going on who can help you when that stuff comes up. Um, you know, So the guide is good. So what has been your experience, Miko, with um, – you know, with, with the guide role in this, uh, modern, uh, ayahuasca, you know, shamanism context, um, you know, do, do, do guides kind of step into the role of becoming a therapist to, to people? The difference between therapy and, and shamanism is, uh, you know, a typical Western allopathic therapist has rules. Like you're not allowed to touch your clients, you're supposed to take the projection that they put on you and keep it separate um, and sort of be in this clinical role. Whereas a shaman will hug you, will embody the projection, will become what you need them to become. Maybe they become the the father figure, become the mother, become whatever you need them to be in order to play out uh, sort of a psychodrama uh, and rewire your experience through reenacting, um, you know, the past. So that's a, a key piece that is different. And I think a key piece of why shamanism is very effective. Um, I mean, I've heard people say that one journey was the equivalent of a year of therapy for them. And I, that's not, that's not a, a singular, singular occurrence. I've, Pretty much consistently, everybody that is introduced to the work says something like that. Uh, even like, you know, I've heard uh, compared to normal talk therapy, normal talk therapy seems like a joke after this experience. Yeah, that's not surprising uh, in the least. Yeah, yeah, I think there's something to be said for people who have been going to therapy seeking some sort of peace or resolution and how open they are to to healing and then to be presented this experience. I mean, for me personally, I, I I'd spent a while speaking with a therapist and, you know, for, for things for per, that were personal for me that I felt like there were perhaps some incremental improvements made, but just if, you know, a handful of experiences with ayahuasca, that was such a volume of information. It was so, um, it, it, it was way more, it was a lot more powerful and a lot more, um, insightful and i i'd be you know i'd echo that fully you know that in my experience that i found it to be um way more potent you know i don't know if it equals a year or, i mean or a lifetime honestly but it it really is a powerful 
tool. Compare it to uh, like different like teaching styles, you know, and, and the advancement in teaching styles. It's uh, you know something like therapy can be sort of like uh, sort of like the the old days where you're sitting you know sitting in class and listening to uh, someone tell you how to do something. Whereas ayahuasca could be somebody giving you the, the tools and saying, you, now you do it and practice. Were you given those tools, Brad? I mean, were you, were you like, you know, uh, kind of led to these, to, to confronting, you know, the, these things you were shown or were you kind of just, you just took it and, and you, you brought yourself to that point? Did you have any guidance in, in this? Um, not guidance in the direct sense. So I didn't have, you know, I wasn't working with someone individually who I was drinking with. But I did feel like maybe more in the hippie sense I had guides. Um, like, for example, right before I drank in Colombia, I met someone who just happened to have spent seven months in Peru and drank like 30 times. And like they were a guide for me. They were a huge resource for me because I was able to talk with them before I drank and I was able to talk with them shortly thereafter. And that was just happenstance. You know, it was just a coincidence that we met at that particular time. Um, but there, so no, I think conventionally, but yes, in, in a larger sense, I, I it did, it, do, it does take time to process like a couple of the sort of cliches that I heard a lot before and after I first started drinking were one, you don't find ayahuasca, it finds you, you know, so whether that you, you drink and you have an experience and you feel it or you don't feel it maybe. Um, and then the other it, that I hear, I heard a lot, um, was the real work comes after the ceremony. So the ceremony or the experience of drinking can provide you a lot of information, but then it's, an incum- it's incumbent upon yourself to work with that and to be honest with yourself and to, to, to move forward with all of this insight and to acknowledge it or not. Yeah, that's an that's a extremely important point. Um, it's often said that we go into the mystical for, for insight, for healing, for guidance, but the change happens in the mundane, in the daily the, you know how you live your life on a day-to-day basis. That's very, very important. Um, and also something you guys mentioned earlier with the efficacy of psychologists. There are very good psychologists uh, who can evoke change very rapidly. Uh, but f- for better or for worse, there are few and far between. And most commonly, you see therapists who are sort of therapists because they're trying to fix themselves. <laughs> and um, those people often project onto their own clients and uh, it's a mess. You know, they're trying to fix themselves through telling their clients what to do. And it, so well, you're saying you should invite them to the ayahuasca ceremony? <laughs> yeah, that would be really good for them. <laughs> Mika, I had a couple of questions. So you mentioned earlier that you know you have drank in Peru and you had had that experience, but we're mostly talking about, I think, your experiences drinking, you know, in in the U.S., right? Like in California, or you know, without being too specific, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable sharing, you know, any, any incriminating information. But I'm really fascinated with you know kind of what you're experiencing locally. Can I just point out how absurd it is that any of this would be incriminating in any way whatsoever? We're talking about helping ourselves and helping one another with uh, with plant medicine Amen, that's, that's, that's been used for thousands of years. <laughs> Let's just take Amen. a brief aside to take note of that. And please continue, Mika. Very good point. Yeah. Uh, well, it's actually Joe brings up a good point. The it's the idiocy of I mean, look at, at mar- even marijuana, for example. You know, how many what millions of people have been imprisoned uh, over the last 
three decades, four decades, whatever it's been since, you know, and the, the idea that marijuana is this gateway drug and spend tens of billions of dollars on this drug war thing. And it's insane. Uh, why, you know, here's a medication that can help people (laughs) with all kinds of problems from insomnia to pain and, uh, you know, cancer support for eating, all kinds of things that are very valuable medical reasons. And this is just marijuana. I mean, something that's very benign. Every culture has had a substance that they prefer and a substance that they demonize. This has been sort of part of the human experience, uh, stretching back God knows how long. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's very sad. And I hope that it will change rapidly in the near future as the consciousness of, of, of humanity expands. I'll drink um, to that. <laughs> Yeah, and as far as my own personal experience in in a modern context, um, obviously I can't be too specific, but uh, I will say it's very frequently a hybrid of the old ways and the new ways, at least the people that I have worked with. Um, I've definitely experienced a lot of different uh, psychedelic substances with uh, with different shamans, and everyone's got their own energy and creates a their own container, which then you know setting setting and substance are very key things. It's not just a little tweak here and there. When you are with a different shaman, it's a different experience because the space is is woven in a in a completely different manner. If you're working with a woman versus working with a man, for example, that's a huge difference. Um, the people that are with you make a huge difference if you know them and like them or if you have problems with them. Um, it's going to that's going to matter. And uh, I will say that my experience with ayahuasca um, has been uh, all over the map. Um, Hawaii has a lot of ceremonies, if you're looking for one. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a great culture in Hawaii. Hmm, uh, working with somebody who works with different medicines that are softer and more um, gentle – in the beginning, as you start to peel back the layers like of your psyche, like an onion, uh, going gently, going with support uh, is important. And you can put it in this context. There are two ge- like basic categories of plants. There are ally plants and there are teacher plants. And an ally plant would be something like sassafras, where you know it's like it's like a heart opening experience it's actually where mdma comes from the roots of the sassafras plant and uh it's it's a very warm it basically holds you so you can feel good about what's ever going on and you see a lot of uh very positive work with ptsd soldiers coming back from war because they're able to experience and process painful experiences with the ally plant holding their hand and making it safer and okay to go there. So I strongly recommend, if at all possible, to have those experiences for quite some time until you feel like your spirit is prepared for the ayahuasca experience. Hmm. Um, And I would also like to add that there are some shamans who view ayahuasca as, um, um, I don't want to say unnecessary, but there are other ways to encounter yourself that are gentler. Um, for example, uh, San Pedro cactus, 
um, you know, is a is a is an alternative or mushrooms or there are many other ways that are not as harsh. That said, ayahuasca is beautiful. It is an amazing plant teacher, and it can it can be extremely healing and valuable. Uh, but just keep that in mind that going in gently and treating yourself with kindness and love and not necessarily just jumping off into the deep end. It actually would be more like jumping off into the middle of the ocean <laughs> uh, and uh, just kind of dipping a toe in and going at a pace that your body, that your spirit, that your mind, that your heart can, can handle and uh, doing it in a context and with a guide who knows about what, you know, that safe, progressive journey oftentimes uh, a first experience not only with ayahuasca but with any plant medicine the first journey will not be very psychedelic Uh, it can be very purgative and traditionally that's that's like the body cleaning itself and preparing itself to have visions it's like getting rid of the negative energy that's not needed Hmm. Uh, and then also it's very much like Columbus's boats. Um, there's a uh, this story. Who knows? Classic Peruvian tale about Christopher Columbus. Yeah, classic Peruvian. <laughs> who knows if this is how true this is? But there, you know, the they didn't have giant boats in the Americas at that time. So when when Columbus uh, or Cortez or whoever was like in these giant wooden ships, it looked like moving islands to the Indians because they didn't understand that that any floating giant thing could be anything else. And some people say, some people say they couldn't even see them, like they were invisible because it was just like so outside of their perspective that they couldn't even create an image of it. It was like, what is this? So there is the thought that when you're first having a, a new experience with the plant medicine, your brain doesn't really know what's going on. So it's sort of stuck in the old way until it gets used to the new experience, which is really psychedelic. Um, so oftentimes, you know, first experiences are not so strong. It, it needs to be like formatted first and then later, you know, it can, uh, <laughs> it can have some data added. Appropriate yeah, for yeah. technologically savvy youth. You need to burn a new, uh, File system. File system for your brain to access. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, the the purgative element of it, you know, being from the root and whether you need to get cleaned out first or, or, you know, where that comes from. I've also heard when I was in Peru, them refer to the root, the the leaf, the chacruna as the light and the root as the soul. So they kind of represent, symbolically, they represent different things and it, it like my, when I was in Colombia, for example, I wondered if it was a heavier ratio of ayahuasca to chacruna because my experiences weren't psychedelic really at all. Like I didn't really have much visual or you know emotional. It was informative, but very subtle, and I really had to kind of give t- a lot of time and space and awareness to sort of learn from those experiences compared to when I was in Peru and I wondered if it was a, li- a bit more the leaf than the than the root because it was very psychedelic. It was very visual. It was very emotional. It was one, one of the nights I didn't purge at all. It was just extremely positive. You know, when normally I'd feel like I'd want to lay down this particular night, I, 
I wanted to like go out and like do cartwheels <laughs> in the jungle. I had so much energy and so much happiness. It was really bizarre and unexpected, but really incredibly positive. Um, but, uh, but so, but I've heard that if it's too much leaf, if there's too much of that, um, psychedelic element that the risk is it's too distracting, like the light's too bright, you know, it's like you, you, you might, you might overlook something where you have an opportunity to grow or to learn because the light is too bright, you know, so it's, it's a balance, you know, for people individually, as well as I think, um, maybe what shamans are trying to do with their specific brew or what they're trying to share. This goes back to what we were talking about initially with the, with the different brews and how different they are, even using two, two different ayahuasca vines, um, can, can be significantly different. Um, and the amount of tracruna you use is certainly, uh, part of, of the overall equation. Um, I couldn't speak specifically to what happens when you double the leaf or anything like that. I will say that in the one experience that I, um, that I was in where it was supposed to be brewed specifically to create visions and to have less purgative effect, that seemed to be the opposite. <laughs> so, Whoops. you know, it was, yeah. And I think part of that too is the energy that is goes into the preparation. So typically when you are creating the brew, you sing songs and prayers over the blue, over the brew. There's a pounding ceremony where you like pound the vines and um, it's all very sacred and the energy that goes into it is, is key in my, in my experience. It's very, you know, so each shaman, not only do they have a different brew, but they have a different brewing model and uh, a different uh, energetic that's going on with the with the tea itself. There are three churches that have legal protection in the United States: uh, the Santo Daime, the Union de Vegetal, and um, the third one escapes my conscious memory right now. But uh, they are legally protected as indigenous religions, and therefore um, it's they are they are it's legal to work with them the same way that uh, the peyote church, the native American church, uh, you can legally grow and consume peyote, um, because it's a, it's their cultural heritage. Uh, that said, I am not a hundred percent sure how you would get involved with those churches. I know the, uh, the native American church, you have to be invited in by some, one who's an elder and given permission. Uh, I don't believe that's the same for the Santo Daime. Uh, and I think they you can just go there. I'm not 100% sure, though. I have not personally interacted with those uh, churches, although I will say that from, uh, from people I know who have been there, it is a very classic circle. Typically, in an ayahuasca in an experience that's traditional, you would drink and no one would talk and they would play the Icaros and their shaman would go around working on people's energy, but you would not have conversations with the shaman uh, necessarily. In more modern contexts where they mix plant medicine with psychology, that is different. And uh, in my opinion, 
uh, could be more comfortable for people in the West because we're very used to using the mind to process things. Um, you know, that said, I'm sure that the traditional ceremonies are beautiful and amazing. I know people who have sat in them who prefer the traditional to the sort of more modern interpretation. Uh, although I think that's a very individual thing. Um, so, uh, and how to find a shaman who does this work. I mean, I couldn't be very specific about that uh, for obvious reasons, but I would say that... The yellow pages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, more, the more you look for, uh, you know, search for shamans and uh, get to know people that are working in these circles, you know, through Burning Man or uh, other sorts of festival gatherings is a good place to sort of connect with people. Um, it's a lot more readily available than it was even five years ago. I would say it's remarkable how many people I know who are doing this work who I, I find out and I'm like, wow, <laughs> that this is very surprising. I wouldn't think that you were doing that, but that's this is great. Um, so it's out there, and if you look, you'll find it. I was shitting myself before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Mika, for joining us on this episode of Entheogen, and uh, happy trails. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Mika, for your time. Thanks, Mika. Great talking to you, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. It's fun. <laughs>